if a business, and this would be relevant to your listeners, if a business wanted to have a fibre connection for their office, then there are a number of suppliers, not the NBN, a number of other suppliers who can provide a fibre connection to their office or their building if they're in a, in a large building, so that everyone in that building would have the option of connecting to a fibre, purely fibre-based network. In terms of what businesses should do, look, what I've done in my business in Sydney is I contracted as a different service provider three years ago, and I have FTTP or FTTB, Fibre to the Building, that's another one of the acronyms. And so we have what's called a synchronous connection. We've got 100, 120 megabits a second up and down. That means our download speeds are the same as our upload speeds and 120, 100 to 120 megabits a second is good. In the US, it's well over double that for in general, uh, if you're in a major city. So that's how far behind we are. My decision was three years ago, to put in a fibre connection direct to our building so that we've got a robust, you know, highly effective system that's available that doesn't go down. And it doesn't go down. You're listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast. Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 173 of Text Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Most of us use accounting software and apps and for most of us, this software and these connected apps sit in the cloud, which means that we are completely dependent on our internet connection. And I experienced this firsthand. I spent a fair bit of time in an accounting practice in Bondi Junction last year and on at least six afternoons, the internet went down for anything between an hour and the rest of the day, which meant that for that period of time, 10 people sat around with basically nothing to do. Yes, I was able to hotspot my laptop, but it just shows how incredibly dependent all of our practices are on the internet. And so since this connection is so vital for all of us, we should know more about it. So I went to see David Lewis of Omnis Software in London to better understand how the internet works and more importantly, how we can get a stable and fast connection. First, you would think, why on earth am I interested in internet? How does that affect accountants and tax advisors, etc.? But the internet is our livelihood nowadays because all our software is in the cloud. Unless you still work on desktop software and only very few accountants still do that almost everybody's in the cloud now so that the moment the internet is down the entire office is sure and so hence the desire to better understand what the internet is and what it does and how it is changing at the moment with nbn mm. so could we start with a very basic question of what internet is and how it evolved yeah look the internet goes back quite a long way and it was a thing called arpanet it was a, a u.s construction obviously but the more well-known commencement of the internet was actually through the universities and they had a system. It wasn't really the internet, but it was a way of communicating with each other using an array of computers at all the various universities around the world. And that really is the origins of, a, I suppose, a, a general internet 
between those universities and academics, and that's really how it started. And then it, it developed from there. You know, with the World Wide Web was something really that was much later, because in the in the in the sixties and seventies, uh, this network amongst universities was already working, and that was already again then another generation beyond the original US development of of a communication protocol. Do you know what they were doing with each other on this? University to university network. Yeah, I mean, they were, were they exchanging research papers or? Well, yeah, to, to a degree, because again, a lot of them weren't typed on the internet at that on the sorry on computers at that time. I mean, I was at university from 1976, and so I was using early systems at that time as well. So it was really a way of communicating with each other rather than sending documents because the documents weren't produced that way at that time they were produced on typewriters you didn't produce it on the you know on a computer so they just used to talk to each other professor smith is coming over tomorrow to do a lecture this kind of type so basically like an early form of email then really it was not so much email more online chat via the no, internet no it wasn't in real time so okay. it it was sending a message so oh, okay. it was you know a greater form of telex which you might recall which was you know almost in real time the sending of a message yes. uh, via telex speaking about email sorry to jump aside hmm. How is email different to the internet? It's, it's a transfer of data. It's just that an email is a, yeah, how is it different? I shouldn't try to explain it. I'm not sure what the comparison is because email is simply sending a message using the internet and that's that's all it is. So something more direct and immediate has been online chat via a, a web interface. So when you're sending an email, you're sending a message. It goes through a whole number of different servers that connect these computers, which is the internet. That's what the internet is. It's a connection of computers all around the world. When you send an email, it's going from effectively a specific place to another place. And then the recipient has to do something to read that email, to generally launch a program on some device to read that, that email. Online chat is via a web interface, so it's via a web page, if you will, and it's immediate. If somebody is logged on to that web page in Sweden and someone else is in Sydney, then the it's immediate. They see those characters come up on their screen within that web interface and they can respond pretty much immediately. And then we come to your mobile phone, which is using a form of the internet as well, It's simply a communication protocol and you're doing WhatsApp, which is immediate, or sending a text message, which is immediate. If the person is with their device, then they can see it immediately and respond. But aren't there two different data networks, the internet and also the um, mobile phone network? It is. The mobile phone network is different because it's using radio frequency instead of using, well, and again, the internet now with Wi-Fi is again using you know, a similar technology to then access a data point. But we're getting very technical if we want to go into stuff like that. At the very start, we had the universities talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Was that via a phone line? Yes. And it was originally, well, in my time originally, it was what's called an acoustic coupler. And again, that's it was a telephone line. And what we had... We had like a little rectangular box. And if your listeners think about it, it's a rectangular box that's round about the size of a telephone handset. 
that you would hold to your ear, which is now uncommon. And what you would do, you would dial a particular number to access the network. You would have this acoustic coupler box open and it would have a lid and the box would be connected to a network. And when you dial this number, you get a very high-pitched whistle would come down the line of the telephone and you had to very quickly take that handset, jam it into the acoustic coupler and close the lid so that there was no outside interference of sound. And it was that signal, that sound, that was able to transport data via an acoustic coupler and it ran at a speed of about 300 bits per second, BPS, which is incredibly slow compared to today's technology, but that's the way we communicated. There was no graphics, there was just text. That's all that you transferred to another person. And so it was 300 bits per second. Yes. What are we on now? Well, we're now talking about speeds of 40 megabits a second as a minimum standard, and we'll get to that with the NBN later, I'm sure. But, you know, we need, it's it's just a, a yeah, drastic magnitude. Completely different kettle totally, of fish. Totally, You couldn't, under 300 BPS, you, you just couldn't transfer images. I mean, that's just not possible. It was bits, which are very small amounts of data, and it really took characters and you could send a message in text effectively, and that's about all you could do. So what you just described with this box, was that already the dial-up modem or was that before the dial-up modem? Before the dial-up modem. I see. So then the next step was getting the internet into people's houses and that happened through the dial-up modem. Yes, that's right. And again, it used the phone line. Again, it used the phone line, but, it, but we'd moved away from this hysterical acoustic coupler box, which was just so funny because so often you'd put it in there and you wouldn't get it in there in time and there'd be outside noise and the connection would fail and you'd have to dial it three or four times to make it work and, and as I said, very quickly rush that that handpiece in there and close the box. So with dial-up modems, we then had moved to a, a much more secure way of connecting, secure in the sense that there wasn't outside interference because that box, the dial-up box, effectively handled all of the, uh, all the problems that were encountered using the acoustic couplers. So then after that came ADSL, I think, or was mm -hmm. there something in between? Well, there was ADSL, ADSL 2, and then ADSL 2 Plus. So these were enhanced forms of communication, and but all of them used the copper wire, that is our telephone lines, to make that communication. And again, ADSL 2 Plus, which a lot of people are stuck on prior to the NBN, unfortunately, is still really slow. And in this area where we live, Heidi, we had speeds of round about three to four megabits a second under ADSL 2 Plus. And again, that's terribly slow today to handle graphical user interface and images, image transportation across the internet. And the reason why we were so slow in this area was that our distance from the telephone exchange was about three to four kilometres and the longer you are away from the telephone exchange, the longer are the copper lines to reach between you and the central point of communication. And there are various ratios that apply and you lose speed the further away you were. So in this area, it was pretty poor. Hmm. So that's why we needed broadband pretty dramatically. 
Okay, so then came broadband, and broadband was cable. Well, not really. I mean, the broadband was more a term of not so much of communication. It was just a wider spectrum, so it's a different term. The broadband was still used as a term with ADSL2+. That was just communication method, and it restricted the speed depending upon, as I said, how far away you were from the telephone exchange. So people would still say they had broadband if they had ADSL2+. We were still using these copper wires, our phone lines, even when we were on broadband. Yes, and many people are still today using ADSL2+, particularly in, in country Australia. They don't have access to uh, a cable or some other form of, of, of or satellite if some of them have got which is which is better we don't yeah i mean it's the slow speeds using that technology so cable is just another form of delivery of the internet that's basically the way that works and, and then moving to my hobby horse which is fiber we still had broadband on copper wires we do and then came cable which was a different network so the roads were opened and a different cable was put down or put yes. up on poles. And how did that happen? Was that a government initiative or did Telstra and Optus all do their own cable network? Telstra and Optus did their own cable network and this was the advent of Foxtel when that was when that came in and there was the laying of cable via Telstra, I believe had the original networks that were laid and that was coaxial cable. And that was in the ground? Well, yes, it was in the ground. Optus laid some of them over telegraph poles from yes. point to point using that. So it wasn't always in the ground. Some of it is overhead as well. So not all of the cable is underground. And not all of that coaxial cable is underground. I see. And so those two separate networks from Telstra and Optus, Optus still exist, are still being Absolutely. used. Absolutely. Yes, they still I exist. See. And today. then the other companies just use that network. You know, other providers either sign up with Telstra or sign up with the Optus network. They did. It's, it is changing now. And TPG is another telecommunications company. TPG, for example, have been laying a lot of cable around Australia now. A lot, well, not cable, a lot of fibre around Australia now for their network. Ausgrid have another network that is already in the ground in a number of places and there are increasing networks that are laying their own cabling as well. So Telstra and Optus, those first networks, they weren't fibre, were they? No. I see. What were they? Coaxial cable. Ah, oh, coaxial cable. Or HFC, similar to HFC, which is part of the NBN's strategy to roll themselves out around Australia using HFC in certain places. The Telstra and Optus network were HFC or coaxial. Then TPG started a network, but with fiber. Why did they change the material of the cable? What was the trigger to change from HFC to fiber? Well, fiber, uh, sorry, uh, HFC is probably started to be used, I think, around about the early 1990s. I mean, it really is a coaxial cable, which is a, a mixture of technologies. It's a mixture of fiber, it's a mixture of, of copper. But HFC is a technology, as is coaxial cable, which is quite old, very old. So co coaxial cable would be older than HFC, would be an older technology. But uh, HFC is, is a hybrid, hybrid fibre coaxial, that's what it stands for. And it's old and fibre was more brittle in the very early stages of its implementation. It was more difficult to handle and therefore it just simply wasn't used because it was just tougher to install and tougher to manage. So... It's not right to say fibre is, is so new. It's not. Fibre's been around for a long time as well. 
It's just a better so technology. At the start, we could only process fiber in a certain way that made it very brittle. Hence, we used a hybrid, HFC. But then technology advanced and we could change the way fiber cables work. Hence, TPG then used pure fiber cables. Yeah, it's, look, it, it's very hard to synthesize this down to some timelines and so on. The, these various technologies have been used in parallel for quite some time and a number of places have had fibre available to them for a long time as well. It's just that it was more difficult on a full commercial basis to use that. So I don't quite agree with that statement. It's more complicated than that. So then after Telstra and Optus, a lot more networks came in, TPG, That's Osprey. only just starting. No, that, that's relatively new. So, so for a long time, we just had Telstra and Optus networks. Correct. And now the next step is NBN, isn't it? Or was there something in between? No, no, the, the, really the, the government decided to roll out a national broadband network, that's what the NBN stands for, strategy, to try and reach a lot of regional areas within Australia as well as the cities to ensure that we had a fast network available. And then we had some political decisions that were made and the Rudd government originally promised the NBN and under that they were going to run fibre to the premises, FTTP. They were going to run fibre everywhere. And the coalition at that stage in opposition opposed that decision and said it was going to be too expensive. It was going to be very expensive. And they proposed an alternate strategy, which would be not to run fibre everywhere, but to use part of the networks that were already in place, particularly in the cities, so they could run fibre to the node and then from the node they could use the existing cabling that was already there to houses. The problem with that is that you're connecting an HFC cable to a fibre node. So there needs to be some translation at that point as the data moves from a fibre connection to an HFC connection to deliver that and to receive the information back. So there's necessarily some degradation in signal that will take place at that point. NBN had enormous difficulties at the start using this HFC connection. What they did is they bought the old HFC cable network from Telstra and it's old and in some places it's not that great. In so it would have been a good deal for Telstra, getting rid of their old network. sensational deal for Telstra to sell off that old cable network. I mean, look, to be fair, we needed to move away from the copper communication system. That's absolutely axiomatic because copper degrades quickly. Maintaining those copper networks, which delivered our telephone service and then our internet service via ADSL, it was not long-term sustainable. Absolutely not. So we... Yes, we needed to change. I've been very critical of the decision to interpose the HFC cable because, A, it's old technology, it's 30 years old. B, it's not as not going to be as robust, and that's been proved correct with the myriad of problems that they've had with the rollout. And lastly, it's just simply not going to deliver the type of service that Australia deserves for the future because, again, coming back to A, it's old. So, you know, and, and you've got a communication protocol difference between HFC and, and fibre where there's that connection and, and that's got to be managed and that's an overhead. So it's a poor solution. At the end, we will have NBN through whole of Australia that just goes to the node, NBN to the node or fibre cables to the node. Yeah. So will that replace the old 
Telstra and Optus networks between the nodes and then we just use the old Telstra network to get from the node to the house? To be honest, I'm not sure. I mean, because that would require me to have an understanding of how these cables have been laid and where they're connected. And I don't I don't have that depth of knowledge. What I do know is that there is generally fibre to the node, which is a central connection point beyond the telephone exchanges. And then from there, in general, there's an HFC cable that will connect individual homes to the internet. I can't say, you know, what's going to replace. I do know that the coaxial cables that we have, in many cases, they'll continue to be used as a form of connection. And that's part of the problem. So some of these old cabling systems will be redundant, certainly where it's purely copper-based, it will be. But whether they all will be or not, I just don't know. And then these other networks by TPG and Osgrid, will they run parallel to NBN? Or does NBN replace part of these networks as well? A company like TPG, uh, look, and I'm not pushing them for any reason, I've got no connection with them, but they are running their own fibre networks, principally in the cities where there's, you know, obviously a concentration of people. They have been able to provide services to businesses for quite some time. And if a business, and this would be relevant to your listeners, if a business wanted to have a fibre connection for their office, then there are a number of suppliers, not the NBN, a number of other suppliers who can provide a fibre connection to their office or their building, they're in a, in a large building, so that everyone in that building would have the option of connecting to a fibre, purely fibre-based network. Now, TPG, for example, have their own fibre network. So you're not going through the NBN if you're connecting to their fibre network. And some people may consider that to be an advantage to be outside of the NBN and others will be wedded to that and think that it's a great solution. Hmm. Uh, my choice has been to go outside. The TPG sounds like an amazing company. Where did they get the capital from to just say, okay, we build our own network? They're funded, they, they raise capital and they build distance. But, I mean, they're not the only one. IINet have done similar things. There's a number of other suppliers who are doing the same sorts of things. Oh, I see. So IINet also has their own yeah, network. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realise yeah, that. I think so. But that's amazing. Every time the road has to be open to put another cable through? or Well, some of them are using other... I mean, they're not all running all of their own cables. I just know that TPG is running a fairly big system. But I know of some other startup companies that are looking to raise capital to build some of their own private networks as well. So it's going to become a more crowded market. But then there's 5G, and that's going to throw a spanner in the works as well. We use 4G for our mobile phones at the moment in Australia, and Australia has some of the best... 4G speeds in the world. It's one area we were actually ahead, probably the only one. But 5G is going to be a game changer. That's going to deliver some seriously fast communication possibilities if it's rolled out well. So that may transcend all of the NBN or any other network uh, in time mm. if it's well enough implemented. The NBN, TPG, etc. So far we've spoken about internet connections, cables, but then we have the mobile network. And I always thought of 4G being mobile. How, it is. How do the internet networks and the mobile networks work together? Well, again, you're connecting via a 5G 
you know, connection from, say, your, your mobile device, be it tablet or, um, or mobile phone. And once you connect to that, you're going back into central networks, which themselves then are cable connected of some sort to each other to enable communication between these things. I see. So our mobile phone pings the closest mobile tower, transfers the data to the closest mobile tower. Then from the mobile tower, it goes back into the network, Correct. be it the NBN yeah, or right. another network, then goes to another mobile tower and then again... Not necessarily. To, it could go to a tower. More likely it's going back into a cable-based network. I see. But then somehow it needs to reach the other mobile phone and that will be via radio frequency again. Oh, I'm sorry, yes, you're quite right. And then it will, so that will come through another mobile yes, tower. Yes. Can we talk about these acronyms that confuse mm. me, which is FTTP, FTTN, FTTC? And FTTH. I think FTTP is the most common one that affects us most, isn't it? Well, no, it's more really FTTN, fibre to the node, FTTN, fibre to the node. This is what NBN strategy has been, is to have fibre to these node points, but then have a different form of communication to deliver the NBN to people's homes. And that is then back to the HFC cable. So in a lot of areas, in fact, in most areas, what NBN is doing, they've got FTTN to their node to deliver the internet. And then from there to people's homes, they've got this HFC cable, which goes the, the final distance to deliver the internet to people's homes. FTTP is fibre to the premises. So it's going not just to the node, but then it's a cable that would run from that node through a whole street or a whole area and into people's homes. So and it's a pure fibre solution. And that was the original idea. The original idea Correct. was to do FTTP right to the premises. Correct. That turned out to be too expensive. And so then they changed to FTTN to just go to the node. That's right. Good. And then FTTC and FTTH are just some peculiar, rare cases that we... Don't need to worry about. Let's not go there because, yes. again, it's, gonna, it's, it's just too confusing for people to understand. Yeah. But can I talk about, in this context, yes. the relative speeds of the internet in different countries so that people can understand what Australia has got compared to other countries? And what Australia has got is pathetic. Pathetic. And I could choose a whole lot of other far more descriptive words and I, if I could, and I would prefer to. But if we look at the, the connection speeds of where Australia is, our average speed, average connection speed is about, and we're down in about 50th place in the world, 11.1 megabits a second is our average connection speed. And that's a, it's a disgrace. It's an absolute Who, who is disgrace. ahead of us? Every, well, 49 countries, countries such as Norway. And I'm, I'm not being disparaging at all about any of these other countries, but Norway, Sweden, Hong Kong, Switzerland, Finland, Singapore, Japan, Denmark, the list goes on. You know, Taiwan, Romania, Czech Republic, Latvia, Lithuania. Lithuania. I mean, it's now, yes. Chile. These countries are physically smaller than Australia. And that is part of the problem. We live in a, in a wonderful, physically very large country. 
no question about that. But the continual failure of our governments of all persuasions to ensure that we've got effective spectrum in this country, it's a disgrace to, to be at that level. So is it possible that we have much faster average speed in the cities, but that the speed is really slow in the outback and that pulls our average so much? I don't think so. I don't think so because, I, again, I think this is done on, on, a, on a population basis and, and these types of studies have been done for a long time showing that Australia uh, is significantly behind and we've been this way for well over 20 years. This is not something new. Our availability of fast internet has always been very poor because it's been hobbled by various, I think, poor decisions. So, you know, to put us in, in these types of positions, it's bad for business. It's bad in general for all forms of our the development of our country. And I think it's, it's a disgrace. And that's why I've been on a campaign to, as you're well aware, to get FTTP in our street so that our homes have fast internet. And it will be a far better system if we have FTTP. Yes, it is more expensive, but lots of these other countries have managed to do it, so why can't we? And th there's no reason why not. Do you think our average scoring will improve once the NBN has been completely rolled out? Sadly, no. Okay. Do you think it would have improved if we had decided to do FTTP instead of FTTN? Uh, yes, I do think it would because it's a modern technology. Again, come back to the point that HFC, which is going to be a significant part of the reliance, although not everywhere, some places are getting FTTP, the old technology is going to hold us back. Again, so, you know, why would we be putting in technology that's 30 years old as our mode to deliver information and share information? Why would we do that? So is the fact that we are still using the old HFC cables, is that the main reason we are linking so far behind? Or are there other no, reasons? No, no, there's other reasons as well. I mean, we just haven't upgraded a whole range of our uh, communication systems. We're lagging so much behind the rest of the world. I see. So But is it also that, for example, the towers are old or the interchanges between the cables are old? Again, I'd need a better engineer than me, and I'm not an engineer. But on the flip side of that, I talked about 4G. Our 4G speeds are right up there with the best in the world. And we've got excellent 4G communication. So that means our mobile tower network is good? Yes, it does. Okay, so it's just once you go into the ground where the problems start. So it seems. Mm. And then 5G is again mobile towers? Again, yes, it'll be mobile towers. It's a new frequency, if you will, a, a new enhanced version. I mean, again, I, I presume that your listeners might remember what it was like to be on 3G and go to 4G because occasionally now they may, on their mobile phones, drop back to 3G if they're in a, a poor communication area, and that happens. And they'll notice a huge difference if they go back to 3G connection on their phone compared to 4G. The, f the move to 5G, the differential will be even greater. 3G, 4G or 5G, is that the number of bars you have on your mobile no, phone? No, no. Has the, the number of bars that. is the strength of the connection between you and your mobile tower wherever you are. So no, it's not that. It's, it's a new frequency of, of communication. I see. So to go from 3G to 4G, something actually changed in the tower. And so when you go back it's to... new frequency. I new see. Frequency. So when you go back to 3G, it means you have traveled into an area that doesn't have this technology in the mobile towers yet. I think the technology is there. 3G is, is a default back when the communication can't be established at that higher level. So I think that you'll find that it's there. It's a spectrum. 
I see. So with 4G, you just have radio waves that are much faster up and down, whereas with 3G, the radio waves have a different shape, probably longer and yeah. less. Yeah, basically. And then with 5G, again, the radio frequency will change again, making it even faster. Yes. Just on, on that point, we are ranked sixth in the world for our speed of 4G connection, which is fantastic. Now, that's good. Which country is the front runner? South Korea. South Korea with 4G. On both. And on internet. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. But do you think, because it's a very small country with a very high population? Absolutely. I mean, you know, economies of scale, quite obviously, you know, and also economies of build. It's a small country, as you say, big population. Therefore, the return on the investment is far easier And the cost to lay cables of high quality is cheaper because, well, just cheaper in the sense that you're going to get the return because of the, you know, the smaller area and the high population. So, mm. yes, Australia presents some unique challenges, no question about that. But even having said that, we still haven't done enough. We should be doing much better. In terms of what businesses should do, look, what I've done in my business in Sydney is I contracted as a different service provider three years ago and I have FTTP or FTTB, Fibre to the Building, that's another one of the acronyms. So we have what's called a synchronous connection. We've got 100, 120 megabits a second up and down. That means our download speeds are the same as our upload speeds and 120, 100 to 120 megabits a second is good. In the US, it's well over double that for, you know, in general, uh, if you're in a, in a major city. So that's how far behind we are. But it, in terms of business, my decision was three years ago to put in a fibre connection direct to our building so that we've got a robust you know, highly effective system that's available that doesn't go down. And it doesn't go down. You have all these internet companies advertising 80 Mbps at evening speed. How does that relate to the 11.1 Mbps average? Well, because the average that people are getting, because many people are still on a copper-based solution because they don't have an NBN connection or they don't have a, a faster connection, they're still getting significantly slow speeds. Even people in our street here until they get a fibre connection or a, an HFC connection, they're still using very old technology to connect to the internet. So going back to one of your earlier questions, yes, you're right, our speeds will improve once we get the rollout of an NBN solution nationwide. It, that will be the case. But my point still is that we're using old technology to achieve that. And whilst we're doing that with old technology, all these other countries are doing more modern technology, more modern systems, and they'll continue to move ahead of us. So we will still be down the chain of standards simply because we're adopting old technology. So it's not the best solution. Well, again, look, I'm just critical of the decision to adopt old technology. I'm saddened by the fact that we think that that's good enough because as a nation, it's not good enough. We need modern systems within this country, not old-fashioned systems. And I'm dismayed that we've chosen a technology that is a fallback solution rather than to install something that's going to take us forward for our kids and grandkids. And this is not, it's a poor solution.
in my view, that's been adopted. I understand it politically. I understand cost issues. But if we really want to build an effective system that will enable 21st century commerce, then what we've done just simply hasn't, hasn't met that standard. Welcome back. So if your practice has a poor internet connection, there seem to be three solutions, at least based on my very rudimentary understanding of the issue. The first one, and only a short-term solution, is to get everybody in your practice to just hotspots their laptops and go straight to 4G, circumventing the NBN. The second one is to basically fix the NBN. If you already have an NBN, you probably have fiber to the node, but then copper or HFC from the node to your premises. So the second solution is to pay the NBN to replace this copper or HFC with fiber. And of course, this is not a cheap exercise, but it is less expensive if several parties in your street or building join forces and share the expense. And the third option is to do something similar to what I understand David did for his business, and that is to connect to an alternative fiber network like TPG that is only fiber and fiber all the way to the building. After my official interview with David, I cornered him with questions about app and web development, data security, as well as his company Omnis Software which I still wanted to share with you. So this is getting quite nerdy. Apologies, my fault. Hopefully you will find it as interesting as I do. What startups did you build before Omnis? I'm a lawyer originally, but I did maths at university as well. And I was a computer programmer before I finished my law degree. So I'm a bit of a strange animal. I've built a number of little companies and move them on and, and I continue to invest in startups and, and other businesses. At the moment, I have a, a software development company. It's called Omnis Software. It's a, an international company and we have offices uh, around Europe and US and Australia. It's called Omnis Software. Omnis Software is a software language. So our clients are software developers. They build applications out of our language. So it's sort so, of... So you created a completely different language? Yes, that's what our company has. It has its own software development language. I see. So is that like Ruby on Rails, like BHP, like Python? God, no. No, no. I like a Java type thing, but it's, uh, again, the company's uh, been around for almost 40 years. It's uh, a rapid application development environment. So it started life as a 4GL, and for those that know what that is, a 4GL language... And our language, it's a, you can build a robust application very quickly with a small number of developers, whereas with most other tools, you need a whole bank of developers somewhere to build an application. It takes a long time. I see. So your language would have much bigger building blocks. Yes, it, that's, that's a good description. It does. It's got a lot of internal building blocks and tools that enable you to build things you know, very quickly. And so who uses the Omnis language? Because it's basically about using the Omnis language, Not enough isn't it? people. More people should <laughs> be using the Omnis language. Is it app developers or is it companies who want to build their own solution? We've got three types of, basically three types of clients. We've got vertical market application developers and they would build an application for accountants, for example, an accounting system built in Omnis. 
and there are a number of those that are around and uh, around the world in different markets. Uh, as it happens, Germany is our, one of our biggest markets, but that's the first type of client. The second type of client is a corporation who would build an application for their internal use and uh, Flight Centre have an application, for example, that runs their business internationally, built in Omnis. And the third type are what I call guns for hire, who are application developers who are expert in the language and they sell their time and their services to the other two. So, you know, on the, on the first part, one of our largest vertical market developers is an application that runs hospitals around the world, accident emergency and theatre management in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. They're very large markets for us for that particular application. And again, our client is the application developer and that company is DXC. It's one of the, the largest uh, IT services companies in the world. And they have built that application through one of their subsidiaries. So that's the type of clients we have. I think you had a number of accounting softwares built on that. There's many of them, many of them. Who builds accounting softwares using your platform? Well, again, there's a... Is it just one accounting practice or is it... Well, it started that way many years ago that accountants and lawyers built their own systems and then that morphed into some very big systems that were they were bought out and, and other companies took them over. There's one wonderful application by um, a company called uh, Ins, Instinct Systems. It's called Job Bag. It's got a full accounting package in the back of it and, uh, and it manages advertising agencies, for example, and uh, managing jobs. And it's an extremely good system and quite large. And that's a, an Australian-based uh, vertical market application developer. Hmm. So there's, I mean, there's a whole host of, of applications. There's thousands and thousands um, around the world of our, our developers. A lot of medical applications as well. We run a significant part of the German government as well, which I can't say any more about, but that's one of the big clients. Coming back to the accounting softwares, which of course interests hmm. me the most, are they private solutions or yes, are they, they, are are they part of larger solutions that are on the market? And probably not Zero or QuickBooks, but are they part of solutions that are offered to the general market? Generally not now. It used to be the case. I think that Zero, MYOB and other applications like that now predominate in the accountancy profession. So, I mean, we're not seeing, you know, our products, or at least our clients, developing applications in that area. It's more specialised rather than a generic application. So it's not just general practice management stuff. Others are doing that. That's uh, it's not what our clients are doing at the moment. How is the development of a mobile app different to a web app? Uh, I mean, it's completely different language, isn't it? Well, in our case, no, because under Omnis, you can build an application and you can deploy it on a laptop on an iPad or on a mobile phone because we've got a, a robust code that enables a, an application developer to, to build once and deploy on a whole variety of different platforms. And then your systems translate it into iOS or Android or into a web language. It's more an, an interface. So the application can be deployed on those different systems, which you can think of really as a communication device. And it just enables you to have the same application deployed and usable on a variety of different devices. And you can use it on your mobile phone and it'll go back to a central data repository stored probably in the cloud, or it could be on private servers as was originally the case. So the utility for the user of these applications is considerable because you can be 
system agnostic. It doesn't matter whether it's Mac or Windows and it doesn't matter whether it's Android or iPhone or whatever type of tablet it is either. So it's extremely useful to have that type of cross-platform, cross-architecture solution. And that's one of the things that we're fairly strong on. Why did we start having a different language for programming mobile apps to programming web apps? You know, at the start... Have you heard of the Tower of Babel? No. Yes, of course I have. Right. There's a, perhaps there's an analogy there. Seriously, though, there's, they're different systems. They're just, they're just not the same. So it just wouldn't have been possible. Even if we had wanted to, we wouldn't have been able to use the existing web languages like HTML, CSS for the front, or the languages we have for the back. We wouldn't have been able to use that for a mobile app. It just wouldn't have worked technically. Well, yeah, there's other things that are, are required to make an application work on a mobile device compared to it working on a computer. So we do have, for example, as I said in Omnis, we do have the ability to, to have an application built for a laptop as well as for a mobile phone. We do have that ability. But still, it is a different implementation of that same, sort of the same application because it's deployed under very different conditions that requires different communication methods. I'm trying to keep this as simple as possible. So there's necessary differences that mean that we have to have differences in, in the way we build things for the different deployments that we choose. Do you know if some of the applications that are built on your platform, are they built to connect different softwares? So is it usually that you use the Omnis platform to build a software from scratch? Yes. Or is the Omnis platform also used to connect different software applications? No, you're building an application and it's not a connection tool. It's a software development language. So you're building applications using Omnis. Now that doesn't, Omnis does talk to, for example, other databases. It's a database system of sort of, you know, again, that was its origins. So it talks to MySQL and Postgres and, and these other SQL-based data sources. So you build your business logic in Omnis and that's where your human interface works and the business logic works. And that interrogates databases which are SQL, SQL-based. So it is, it's talking to a range of different technologies, but it is an application that requires connections in any case to those technologies. Would you be able to get a software developed on Omnis to connect to Xero or to connect to MYOB? Yes, you could. Omnis is so strong in England and the US and continental Europe, and you are based in Australia. It started in the UK. That was the origins of the company 40 years ago. And it built up a very significant following in Europe. It then listed on NASDAQ in the late 1980s and, um, and flourished there for a while. I became, a, originally, my story is I became a distributor for this as one of my businesses in the middle 1990s and just three years ago I bought the company and converted it to a private company from a public company and we're rebuilding it and changing the focus of it. But I mean, the, just continental Europe was the major market as well as the US, but the headquarters of the company is in 
the UK. I moved it there from the US three years ago. And I travel, I go backwards and forwards. We live part of the year in London and part of the year in Sydney. Why did you move it from the US to London? Just because you prefer living in London for part of the year? or Yes. Or less complicated legislation definitely, co around corporations? Definitely less complicated. Also, legal system. I mean, the English legal system is much easier for me to manage than the American legal system. Because the American legal system is very litigious. Yeah, it's much more difficult for us. And I'm Australian. Uh, my wife is English, so she has family that lives in London. Uh, we know London extremely well and have lived there before. So, I mean, that's it's a good place for us. And we have our engineering team is in the UK. So we've got 20 engineers uh, in an office in the UK, um, and that's where our software architecture development takes place and, and maintenance. So that also was a, a good base for us. And as I said, the you know continental Europe is our biggest market at the moment, so that also made sense. And I love London. London's a fabulous place. I do need to say we try and stay quite agnostic from our developers because otherwise they're competing with each other. So our clients have got applications that do compete with each other. And it's difficult for us to promote one over the other. We own the language. We own the building blocks that the developers use to build their applications. So there are less direct accounting applications, certainly in Australia, that are available at the moment. I did mention one of them, which is JobBag, which is not so much a, a system for accountants, but it's more a, it's a system for any office that has, that runs a series of jobs. Like projects. Like projects, that's absolutely right. And it's outstanding. So uh, it's like Asana or? I don't know that system. Okay. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so that's very good. But again, you know, we, we try and stay a bit agnostic away from that because it's just not fair otherwise to promote one or the other. We'll, we'll point them to a myriad of different systems. Mm -hmm. But uh, at the moment in Australia, there aren't that many accounting applications that are, uh, that are developed as far as I'm aware. Do you know which language Zero is built in? No, probably C++. Uh, you know, mm. which, is a, which is a Microsoft language, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very basic building blocks set of uh, systems. So it's not, it's not an RDBMS, it's uh, basic building blocks. And MYOB? Don't know. But uh, it's probably the same. And look, I will say, and, and this may be a little bit controversial for your listeners, I am not a fan of storing everything in the cloud. Anything that is stored there is potentially open to be hacked. So something important for your listeners to be aware of. That But if isn't they, that always, even on a desktop or even on a local server in the company? That has other problems where somebody could, you know, take a copy of the database that's on a local server and take that away. But that's the security of your staff, which, you know, there are times that that's been a, a major issue as well. So everything comes with risks. It's just that if you store your data in the cloud, you're opening up to a far greater number of people than you would do if you've just got office security to deal with. So I'm not a fan of storing my data in a mode where it's available on the internet. And I certainly don't store my accounting data there. I am uncommon in this regard. Most people are now doing this. I won't do it. So you accountants don't use cloud accounting software? They do. I just don't use it. How does that work? If they prepare your accounts yeah, and your accounts are in the cloud... They've got to enter it manually into their systems to then upload it to the tax department. Oh, I see. So basically the accounting is done on a server in your company 
Then the um, accountant takes the numbers, do their magic in the cloud, but there's no... Well, that doesn't go in the cloud. They then simply prepare my accounts and upload them to the ATR. I see. Through their portals that way. I see. But all your business transactions, etc., they're all tracked and managed through Locally. a local yep. server. Yep, that's right. Okay. I just don't do it the other way. Now I know. I mean, it's, it's very convenient to do this the other way. It allows a lot of offshore processing and all those sorts of things. I don't do that. It's all, I'm having had this wonderful discussion about all this new technology, I'm doing things in an old-fashioned way. I mean, and I do that simply because I don't want my data exposed to potential hacking. Now we've seen enormous amount of hacking of people's passwords. I'm sure many of your colleagues would have had emails over time from people saying, I've got your password and I'm going to do all these terrible things to you if you don't pay me $10,000. So, you know, passwords have been hacked, bank accounts are hacked, anything, any information that is in the cloud, people need to be aware, it is potentially available to be hacked. Hmm. But I've never heard of Zero or MYB or any of the other accounting software apps being hacked. No, neither have I. But I mean, if certain countries can be alleged to have interfered in elections or for some reason why Australia or other countries won't license certain Chinese companies, why, why is that? Why won't they do that? And I think the answer is that there's a suspicion that if we allow technologies to be you know, widely dispersed, then we're opening ourselves to risk. Whether that's real or not, you know, I don't know. But I've always taken the, the view that any of my important data that I consider to be confidential, I'm not going to store in on someone else's server because that's effectively what I'm doing by storing my data on the web. It's very convenient. It's extremely convenient, no question about it. But I think the question one needs to ask is what level of privacy does one want and where do you draw the line? How much data do you expose? This is a far deeper conversation than comes into Instagram and Facebook and these various other technologies. And do I allow my phone to be in a mode where I can be tracked by Google at any time as to where I am? Do I want that? It's uh, all these issues are tied together. So information security, uh, integrity is for individuals to respect privacy is a, a major issue. And I think that flows over to the, the legal and accounting professions as well. Do you think your wariness about data privacy comes also because you spent a lot of time in Europe? Yes. I have the feeling that Europe is a lot more... 100%. ...sensitive about data privacy and well, GDPR, than us. You, you're familiar with GDPR now in, in Europe. This is a, a huge issue and there's been recent legislation that deals specifically with data protection. Is it this legislation that now legislates what you do with data, with private data Absolutely. you have? That's exactly right. That's precisely what it does. And there's now, there's a lot of these companies that advertise, we can we can help you with leads, for example, with your business. So, you know, sign up with us and we can do all these wonderful things. Well, the American companies no longer have access to European data because of GDPR, because they the European companies can't provide this data externally. So this is having an effect on business around the world. And in my view, rightly so. I mean, there are considerable risks and and I support the GDPR initiatives from Europe. And Because we don't have this discussion at all yet in Australia no, around not. No, data not. privacy no. and security. No, hmm. not at all. Not at all. It's How come Europeans are so sensitive about this topic and we are not at all? Look, personal opinion, I think because of, of proximity 
of different peoples, whereas Australia, New Zealand, typically view ourselves at the other end of the earth and we're immune from all of this and we're not connected enough, whereas Europe is so connected, Brexit aside, to each other that they're aware of the sharing of things between each other and therefore that needs to be at least considered if not partly regulated. I mean, again, I think that's uh, possibly a reason why, but we've ignored issues of, of data protection. Again, that, that's unfair. We have not been as, as observant of the issue as, as I think other countries have been. Yes, but I think you're right that the location plays a role. I think if we had a direct mainland connection with certain countries like China, etc., I can imagine we would be more sensitive about that. Oh, absolutely, we would. I'm sure we would. It's a major, a major issue. We see ourselves as we're disconnected somehow and therefore we're immune. But that, it's, it's a wonderful way to connect this. That's what the internet is all about. It's about total interconnection and Countries are no longer isolated by virtue of the physical distance from one another. The internet changes that dramatically and that's why we need fast access to the internet, otherwise we're behind all these other countries. Because there's such a sensitivity about privacy, do you think Europe is less open to cloud accounting software? I don't think so, but I, I just I can't do imagine wonder. with this sensitivity around data privacy that there will be a higher reluctance to move to cloud accounting softwares. Look, you raise a really good point, Heidi. I mean, it's, and I don't know the answer to this, and it's a, it's a really good question. How does GDPR impact upon cloud-based intercontinental yes. systems? I don't know. It's a really good thing to consider. Because so far, when cloud accounting softwares are discussed, it's always talked about Australia, New Zealand, US, Canada, the UK, but Europe, Asia, Africa are completely out of this mm. discussion. And of course, it's also because different languages, etc. And a lot of people say we are very far ahead. And maybe we are ahead because we are just not so wary about data privacy and maybe. security. Maybe. I don't know. Look, it's a really good question. I, I certainly know from the technology markets in Europe, that they are far more advanced than we are in terms of JavaScript client communications, handheld devices and technology so that you're able to interface from those to a data source, an external data source. They're certainly far ahead of us in that regard. But um, cloud-based accountancy, I, I don't know. It's a really good question whether how the legislation has affected that and what they're doing. I don't know. Good question. We should ask someone. Welcome back. In the next episode, episode 174, Edward Chen of Wise Mentoring will talk about practice management. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.